This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. There are courts that operate at the federal level that are, well, let's just say they're not courts in the way that we're used to thinking of them. And when it comes to giving the people who appear before those courts due process, well, due process may not be the most important factor in these courts' adjudications. Cato's Will Yateman details the due process problems in these Article II so-called administrative courts. We are familiar with law and order. There is an arrest. There was a crime committed, and then you go to court. And uh, most people probably don't recognize those courts as being a specific uh, delegation from state government or federal government. This is Article Three. This is the judicial branch of government in operation. But within the executive branch, administrative agencies, there are courts that exist that are known as Article II courts that are within administrative agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission, various other departments that have these so-called Article II courts. And uh, I guess people don't really appreciate that there's uh, maybe a, there's a massive difference between what you are due as a constitutional matter in this court versus that court. So how do you understand the uh, Article II court, these administrative agency courts that operate within the federal government? Yeah, let me set the table here. Um, so these Article II courts have existed for more than 100 years. And for more than 100 years, um, they've been controversial. So uh, critics have long observed the obvious constitutional problems, the obvious separation of powers problems, the obvious due process problems incurred when an agency, when, when these prosecution and judging functions are under the same roof. Um, so these constitutional criticisms, they've been around for a while. What has changed is that since the 80s and 90s, Congress has delegated ever more prosecutorial power to these regulatory agencies. I mean, that is their authority, their jurisdiction. What they can do has grown precipitously over the last four odd decades. Um, and I think here, I guess a great example would be the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Um, for the first 40 years, the agency could bring in-house prosecution actions only against entities that had to register with the SEC as a condition of doing business. Um, there were only a, a few thousand such companies. Um, it, also, the SEC, in terms of penalties, all they could do was revoke your registration. And sure, that's a huge deal for the company in question. It means they can't do business. But, you know, again, it, it's tethered to this registration process. Things are a lot different now. Um, since the 80s and 90s, the SEC has gained the power to prosecute anyone, regardless of whether or not you're registered with the agency. And, and penalties include seeking scores of millions of dollars worth of uh, penalties in, in terms of disgorgement and, and civil fines. So we've seen the, the constitutional criticisms, the constitutional problems, they've remained the same. But these, this system of agency in-house courts has become more formidable. And what that has done is, is it's really uh, uh, rendered more acute, drawn into sharper focus, these long-held constitutional problems uh, pertaining to due process and separation of powers. Okay. So give me an example of where we have seen 
the due process issues, which, which is when we say due process, for the most part, what we mean is the process that is owed to you by a court that is organized under Article 3 or the, the same uh, kind of courts that exist in state governments. Uh, so when we say due process, what do we mean when we're talking about an, a court that is organized completely within the executive branch of government? Well, indeed. And first, I'll just note, with due process, of course, we've got a constitutional term of art there. We're generally talking about procedures that accord with basic fairness. Um, so an example of, of recent uh, due process separation of powers concerns at an agency um, will continue with the SEC. Um, and so this pertains to what is known as internal separation. So what is internal separation? Um, that was actually Congress's solution for the constitutional problems of these agency in-house courts. And that is to say, in 1946, Congress unanimously passed this Administrative Procedure Act, which established, again, internal separation, which is basically an internal firewall within the agency that keeps the prosecution teams apart from the judging teams and vice versa. I mean, you know, you, you don't want them mixing it up. Um, well, let's get to this example. The SEC in April issued what is frankly a bombshell concession that there had been a breakdown in internal separation at the agency, whereby members of the prosecution team had been accessing files from the judging team. Um, now, uh, the agency said we'd conducted our own internal review and we uncovered nothing afoot, no, no wrongdoing. Uh, so they absolved themselves. Um, but it certainly raises a number of questions in my mind. I mean, it, it, I'll note this as well. This has been underreported. I mean, I learned of it by accident. And this is a pretty darn big deal. The agency admitted to a breakdown in the fundamental legislative protection for due process at its in-house courts. Um, and, you know, just imagine. Um, imagine what a judge would do in an Article Three court if the prosecution said, hey, oh, whoops, we accidentally ac accessed your internal memorandum. But trust us, we didn't use it for any, you know, no good. We, we were completely on the level. Um, would a judge just take the prosecutor at his word? Uh, I, I doubt it. But when an agency, when, when the court is inside an agency and they operate all these functions, they can effectively absolve themselves. So what's the recourse for somebody, uh, a, a company? or a CEO or somebody within a company who has discovered that they have been uh, not necessarily a victim, but have had their had what the Article II court considers to be due process uh, violated. What's a recourse? Well, your question gets at sort of the constitutional weirdness of these in-house Article II courts to begin with. And, and that's to say it's unclear what, what remedy there would be because the agency holds all the cards. I mean, they investigated themselves. Um, so, you know, potentially, well, you'd have to find out as to whether or not you were affected. And then you'd have to f try to find out how you were affected. Um, and, you know, prying information from the government isn't necessarily an easy task. Um, but were such information to come to light, were an entity to suspect that behind the scenes there had been this mixing up of the prosecutorial and judging functions, um, then it would try to persuade a court to allow it to engage in discovery, which is just a legal term for being able to ask questions of the government that the government has to answer. 
Um, and if it came to light that these shenanigans took place and that um, even the appearance of uh, impropriety was there, then they'd have a pretty darn strong, you know, procedural due process constitutional claim against the agency to, uh, in essence, you know, negate what the agency is trying to prosecute them for. All right. So uh, what are some other examples where we've seen uh, article, so-called Article 2 courts behaving inappropriately or just broader due process problems within those courts. So another example would be the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And, and this is another fascinating instance whereby the agency admits to a gross impropriety. Um, so the USDA, that's the Ag Department, they operate in-house courts for various statutory regimes. So including the Horse Protection Act, um, including protection against invasive plant species, stuff like that. Um, well, uh, much of the agency's problems stem from its unique structure. And uh, simplifying generally, at pretty much every other agency, here's how things work. The government brings a prosecution action at its in-house court. A person defends himself. There's adversarial litigation. And then an initial decision is rendered by an inferior officer known as an administrative law judge. That initial decision, and again, this is how it works at pretty much every other agency except for the Ag Department, that initial decision is reviewed by the principal at the agency, that, that is the head of the agency. So at the SEC, uh, an administrative law judge would issue an initial decision and it would get reviewed by the five-member SEC commission that runs the place. That's not how things work at the USDA. USDA has this quirky system whereby the ALJ, the administrative law judge's initial decision isn't reviewed by the secretary who runs things. It's instead reviewed by another inferior officer known as the judicial officer. Well, here's the, here's the deal. The recent Supreme Court cases have cast a, a doubt upon the, constitution, uh, the constitutionality of the USDA's idiosyncratic structure. So what am I getting at? Well, in order to get around these constitutional problems, the agency admitted, or, or you know, I guess it was defending itself. This was part of its legal argument in, in you know, it, uh, in a case before the D.C. Circuit. Um, the agency basically said, "Hey, these recent Supreme Court cases don't apply to us," uh, you know, despite uh, on its face that they do, um, and that's because the secretary behind the scenes is exercising secret influence over the J.O. that is functionally akin to the same sort of structure, you know, inferior officer review by a principal officer that's at every other agency. Um, that's ludicrous. I mean, that, that is genuinely mind-blowing that the agency would try to defend itself from these structural problems, which, again, I didn't go into, but they exist. Um, by by saying, hey, those don't apply here because secretly behind the scenes, the secretary is influencing the outcome of this adjudication. I mean, that, that flies in the face of a fundamental due process principle. You're not supposed to have secret behind the scenes influence. That just, uh, that, uh, again, that is uh, uh, quite obviously contravenes the Constitution. Um, so uh, that litigation is still pending and, and there will be an answer. I mean, you know, it'll, the wheels of justice are slow, but um, that's going to bite them in the backside. I've heard uh, people talking about uh, the idea that administrative agencies, if we s fully separate courts from the executive, that is, courts simply do not exist within the executive branch, uh, 
that there will be such a crush of cases that are suddenly required uh, to be handled by a duly constituted Article Three courts that uh, it will just be overwhelming to them and that maybe these courts aren't well equipped to handle the kinds of cases that might come before them. And that is presented as an argument for, hey, we need to have courts that exist uh, in the executive branch that have expert. There are people with expertise in there to present cases, to make arguments, uh, and to mete out justice within the executive branch. What do you make of that? Were that true, and it's not, um, it wouldn't matter. We're talking about constitutional fairness. So you're talking about an administrative burden. I mean, boo-hoo. We're, we're, fundamentally, we're talking about people's rights here. So even if that were true, it wouldn't matter. But it's not true. Um, the fact is, so there are more than a million administrative adjudications conducted every year. Well, one of, uh, more than one million of those uh, the overwhelming preponderance, I mean, about 98% total, are conducted by the Social Security Administration um, over benefits. I mean, these are non-adversarial. They don't involve punishment, that is to say. And that's a big, big distinction. Um, the fact is that as a practical matter, there are very few. I mean, you know, I study these things quite closely, and I would say no more than a few score um, every year of these in-house administrative adjudications that go after people for big-time penalties. So it's just simply not true that this would overwhelm, um, that were we to, uh, were Congress in one fell swoop to take all these, uh, you know, all the ones that pertain to actual punishment, um, uh, significant punishment for everyday individuals, you know, who aren't, say, registered with the agency, um, if those were removed from, from Article Two from the executive branch, it would in no way um, burden the courts. And, uh, you know, to be sure, our federal court system uh, is heavily burdened. There are backlogs in certain jurisdictions, but we're talking here um, about a literal, you know, drop in the bucket, proverbial bucket. Um, so, uh, you know, my answer to your question is one, even if it were true, who cares? We're talking about constitutional due process. We're talking about important stuff for, for American citizens. Um, so you're, the, these concerns about administrative efficiency, they shouldn't matter. But more importantly, um, the underlying premise is just false. I mean, it's simply not the case um, that there's that many of these things out there as an initial matter. So with respect to uh, efficiency, what do we know about the efficiency of uh, these Article II courts? Holy smokes. Well, I mean, the, that's a fantastic question. We just, so actually we do know something, and I guess we'll continue with this example of the SEC. Um, myself, our colleague Jen Schulp, and our colleague Clark Neely, we just participated in a case, uh, SEC v. Cochran. It's on the merits before the Supreme Court. Our brief brings to light original research that answers your very question. Um, the, the long and short of it is that at the SEC, for, you know, again, what, what is, there's not very many of these things, but four contested proceedings with big stakes um, we're talking millions of dollars, talking millions of dollars. We're talking again, big stakes. Um, the average, the average duration or the average age of, of the cases on the SEC's backlog, um, is six years. Um, that's three times as long as the average jury trial. 
And again, we're, you know, the, I guess we, we can fault here the inefficiency is um, I spoke before about this process, initial decision by an administrative law judge reviewed by the SEC. In the case of the SEC, the fault lies with this uh, uh, appellate review. I mean, that is to say the commission itself has only issued three of these you know, reviews of initial decisions in the last five years. At that pace is slow as molasses. And why is that the case? Um, well, it's for a uniquely Article II reason. Um, they keep on cycling through commission members. <laughs> you know, it's not just when presidents change hand. There's been this recent trend whereby commissioners leave, leave uh, uh, two years into their five-year term. Well, every time a new commissioner comes on, oh, they've got to become acquainted with the whole backlog of cases. Um, you know, again, that's a, a, a that's a problem unique to Article II justice. You know, of course, in Article III courts, we've got lifetime tenure. Um, so, you know, it's a very, uh, you know, the reason for the gross inefficiency at the SEC. I mean, again, these things are taking three times as long as a jury trial before an Article III court. Um, it's because they're administrative courts to begin with. I mean, because because their political leadership is, you know, is coming and going um, so often and not just when there's wholesale turnover um, with the change of a presidential administration. So with specific respect to uh, these Article II courts, uh, how often do they lose? Well, because, because you understand, like there's a there's a person who's coming before the court. It is a court that is constituted within an agency that has certain interests. And it, I don't know, it just seems like the deck would be stacked against whoever is coming before that court expecting justice. <laughs> the deck would be stacked. That, that is exactly right. I mean, just imagine it. You're taking on the resources of the federal government as an initial matter. I mean, no one has deeper pockets because the, their hands are in all because our pockets. Because there are pockets. Yeah. <laughs> than the federal government. So you're taking that on as an initial matter. I mean, even if you're in an Article Three court, um, the deck is stacked against you. But you're not just taking on the government's big resources. You're taking them on in their home turf, um, where the federal rules of civil procedure that govern procedural fairness in federal courts, they don't apply. Um, the rules are, in essence, made up on the go by administrative law, by these aforementioned administrative law judges. We don't have excellent data um, regarding how often agencies win. It's, it's one of those things where it's performed one paper at a time. I mean, the government doesn't cough up this information willingly. Um, but we do have some hints. Um, and this would get to another example of these due process problems. Um, there's a case uh, that was recently before the Ninth Circuit that is actually now before the Supreme Court, Axon v. FTC, Federal Trade Commission. Um, I won't go into the, the nuts and bolts of the case at all, but I, I will note the Ninth Circuit's opinion. Um, and again, Ninth Circuit isn't known as being a bastion of conservatism. Um, but the Ninth Circuit, in ruling on the case, noted that the FTC had not lost on its home turf. And again, the FTC here is going to be adjudicating, prosecuting um, antitrust violations, antitrust law. Um, the Ninth Circuit said the FTC hasn't lost on its home turf in 25 years. Um, the court rather cheekily said that this is a record that the 72 Miami Dolphins would envy. And the court said this is the sort of thing that does engender, uh, uh, does raise eyebrows when it comes, or does engender concerns, does raise eyebrows when it comes to um, due process concerns. Uh, that case was about justiciability, so whether or not the court could litigate those concerns to begin with. Um, so it didn't actually reach as to whether or not we had a due process problem, but it did indicta um, non-binding you know, language. The court did say, hey, 
we we seem to have a due process problem here. I mean, it is kind of awfully strange that the agency is undefeated in a quarter century. Yeah, it's 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 almost like uh, you've given yourself a self uh, high five uh, <laughs> for having won in a court that you that your agency that because you work for that agency as an attorney that you know more way way more about that system than the people who are coming before it. Now that's a problem probably in real courts as well, but within an within an administrative agency, I got to imagine that that problem is uh multiplied. Exactly, a myriad times. I mean it's a uh, you know again, at the end of the day it's not just the government's deep pockets. At the end of the day, um, within the same entity, under the same umbrella, you got the prosecution team, the judging team. And as I noted earlier with that SEC example, sometimes they mix it up. Um, And that is, uh, yes, that is a daunting prospect for any defendant. So if if someone receives their judgment from an Article II court that is within a federal administrative agency and they decide, I don't like this outcome. Presumably, they can go to a real court. But of course. But what's the problem with that? Here's the problem. Um, So uh, uh, the issue is one of deference. Um, And that is to say that in this process of what is known as judicial review, so that's when a circuit court, an appellate court at the federal level, reviews the decision-making by an agency in these administrative adjudications, these Article II courts, Um, The problem is that on both the facts and the law, we've got these long-held, long-established doctrines of deference that in essence means the courts, um, uh, in essence means the the agencies get their way, I mean, without going into it in any great detail. Um, So the issue is you're, you're, you're not getting your first bite of the apple before a federal court. And because your first bite of the apple comes before an administrative court, um, the federal court then sort of uh, uh, takes the agency at its word. Um, again, all these deference doctrines come into play on matters of, of fact um, and law and, you know, are just part of this daunting challenge faced by defendants. I mean, you, you sort of jump from the fryer to the, or, or from the, the skillet to the frying pan, whatever the saying is. <laughs> but, you know, it's difficult. You're, you're going from the system being biased against you by its very structure, the, these in-house courts, to the system being biased against you by virtue of these deference doctrines. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Please subscribe and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.